Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Jungian Ever After, a podcast about fairy tales through the lens of Jungian analysis. I am your host, Reysa, and joining me as always is my co-host and Jungian analyst, Dr. Indina Davidson. Today we will conclude our coverage of Grimm before we move on to our next project. Our final tale is one that is near and dear to my heart, and that is the story of Briar Rose, or Sleeping Beauty, as many of you may know it. So... Why is Briar Rose near and dear to your heart? So I doubt this would come up in any analysis, but I've always felt that the story resonates with me in terms of the trans experience, or perhaps just any queer experience. The idea of being asleep for a very long time uh, until suddenly the curse is broken and sort of all is bright, but the world is fundamentally different from when you first went to sleep. So sleep is a state of not knowing who you are or not being open with others about who you are? I think a a bit of both. You know, when I was a child, I had no vocabulary of being trans. And so I just sort of thought I was shy. I didn't like changing in front of other people, any people. And... I didn't really like my body. And when I went through puberty, I really didn't like mm-hmm. what was happening, but I couldn't put my finger on on why. You know, I just didn't want to have hair and... Just felt wrong? Yeah. And without the language to identify what I was going through, I just had no idea. And it wasn't until college where I started meeting trans people at Oberlin and gaining the vocabulary that I realized I was trans. And that showed up then in my artwork. Mm. I did a lot of stuff with roses because the the name I picked, Raisa, means rose. And through that, I kind of came to the Briar Rose story. But in my past growing up as a kid, my dad was very into swords and so i Mm -hmm. liked the king arthur story and excalibur and so my artwork kind of had this theme of going from that past of you know king arthur into the present of briar rose and one of my main pieces in my thesis show i guess Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. was this one where i had a sword in the stone built out of clay and I smashed it on the ground and within was this cast silver rose that I had made and that to me was sort of representative of my waking up Mm -hmm. from a male-presenting child who was into swords and everything that his older siblings were to my my present as as a woman and so it's it, it is both that i was waking up and also that i was being my authentic self to to other people around me which mm. which is a scary thing to to take on particularly i was in a fraternity mm-hmm. and i was fortunate enough that all of them were very accepting about it. I don't think that's particularly common. It happened to be both a university and a chapter where they were very special. 
And yeah, it really was like waking up from that hundred year sleep and everything was different. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the crazy things is I knew you then, right? We've <laughs> known each other that long. And I, re- I really remember from the outside watching you wake up, <laughs> watching this person who up till you were coming out felt so not there. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I think in particular about a photograph that you took. Do you remember that photograph? Yeah, it was in an art show, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't remember the title, but you weren't in it. <laughs> and I think that was such a picture of you. I'm, I'm not here. I'm somewhere else. And then I just remember after you came out, talking, I think, to you and to Rachel about feeling you sort of come into your own body and into your own skin and just being more present. And I feel like that unfolding has just continued over the last 10 years. <laughs> there there have definitely been stages. I think another big jump was when I had surgery and so didn't have to take certain medications anymore. Mm-hmm. And that was another big sort of opening up for me of just feeling freer, lighter, mm-hmm. much more talkative. Just this huge sort of burden that was lifted. And, and another thing in terms of being open with others was, you know, I had this belief that to some extent I still believe, but I've sort of shifted how I approach it. That basically as soon as someone knows that you're trans, that will be the lens through which they sort of see everything you do and anything you do that's slightly male-coded or whatever will be because of how you grew up. Right, right, right. And so I would try desperately to just not let anyone know if they didn't. Mm -hmm. And it just got to be so much in terms of feeling like lying. Mm -hmm. And eventually I decided to just be out on the internet and broadly. And while it's scary in some respects, it's ultimately felt better to sort of just be my authentic self. I I mean, in a way that feels like each of these steps is another waking up from another sleep. Mm -hmm. But I think that... Should be enough about me. <laughs> uh, all of this is kind of very present with a lot of the legislation going on this year. But I think we should really get into the story so people can, can sort of make these parallels for themselves. All right. Briar Rose from Household Tales by Brothers Grimm. A long time ago, there were a king and queen who said every day, Ah, if only we had a child. But they never had one. But it happened that once when the queen was bathing, a frog crept out of the water onto the land and said to her, Your wish shall be fulfilled. Before a year has gone by, you shall have a daughter. What the frog had said came true, and the queen had a little girl who was so pretty that the king could not contain himself for joy and ordered a great feast. He invited not only his kindred, friends, and acquaintance, but also the wise women, in order that they might be kind and well-disposed towards the child. 
there were thirteen of them in his kingdom. But as he had only twelve golden plates for them to eat out of, one of them had to be left at home. The feast was held with all manner of splendor, and when it came to an end, the wise women bestowed their magic gifts upon the baby. One gave virtue, another beauty, a third riches, and so on with everything in the world that one can wish for. When eleven of them had made their promises, suddenly the thirteenth came in. She wished to avenge herself for not having been invited, and without greeting or even looking at anyone, she cried with a loud voice, The king's daughter shall in her fifteenth year prick herself with a spindle and fall down dead. And without saying a word more, she turned round and left the room. They were all shocked, but the twelfth, whose good wish still remained unspoken, came forward, and as she could not undo the evil sentence, but only soften it, she said, It shall not be a death, but a deep sleep of a hundred years, into which the princess shall fall. The king, who would fain keep his dear child from the misfortune, gave orders that every spindle in the whole kingdom should be burnt. Meanwhile, the gifts of the wise women were plenteously fulfilled on the young girl, for she was so beautiful, modest, good-natured, and wise, that everyone who saw her was bound to love her. It happened that on the very day when she was fifteen years old, the king and queen were not at home, and the maiden was left in the palace quite alone. So she went round into all sorts of places, looked into rooms and bedchambers just as she liked, and at last came to an old tower. She climbed up the narrow winding staircase and reached a little door. A rusty key was in the lock, and when she turned it, the door sprang open, and there in the little room sat an old woman with a spindle, busily spinning her flax. Good day, old dame, said the king's daughter. What are you doing there? I am spinning, said the old woman, and nodded her head. What sort of thing is that that rattles round so merrily? said the girl, and she took the spindle and wanted to spin too. But scarcely had she touched the spindle when the magic decree was fulfilled, and she pricked her finger with it. And in the very moment when she felt the prick, she fell down upon the bed that stood there and lay in a deep sleep. And this sleep extended over the whole palace. The king and queen who had just come home and had entered the great hall began to go to sleep and the whole of the court with them. The horses, too, went to sleep in the stable, the dogs in the yard, the pigeons upon the roof, the flies on the wall, even the fire that was flaming on the hearth became quiet and slept. The roast meat left off frizzling, and the cook, who was just going to pull the hair of the scullery boy because he had forgotten something, let him go and went to sleep. And the wind fell, and on the trees before the castle not a leaf moved again. But round about the castle there began to grow a hedge of thorns, which every year became higher, and at last grew close up round the castle and all over it, so that there was nothing of it to be seen, not even the flag upon the roof. But the story of the beautiful sleeping Briar Rose, for so the princess was named, went about the country, so that from time to time king's sons came and tried to get through the thorny hedge into the castle. 
but they found it impossible, for the thorns held fast together as if they had hands, and the youths were caught in them, could not get loose again, and died a miserable death. After long, long years, a king's son came again to that country, and heard an old man talking about the thorn hedge, and that a castle was said to stand behind it, in which a wonderfully beautiful princess named Briar Rose had been asleep for a hundred years, and that the king and queen and the whole court were asleep likewise. He had heard, too, from his grandfather that many king's sons had already come and had tried to get through the thorny hedge, but they had remained sticking fast in it and had died a pitiful death. Then the youth said, I am not afraid. I will go and see the beautiful Briar Rose. The good old man might dissuade him as he would. He did not listen to his words. But by this time the hundred years had just passed, and the day had come when Briar Rose was to awake again. When the king's son came near to the thorn hedge, it was nothing but large and beautiful flowers, which parted from each other of their own accord, and let him pass unhurt. Then they closed again behind him like a hedge. In the castle yard he saw the horses and the spotted hounds lying asleep. On the roof sat the pigeons with their heads under their wings, and when he entered the house, the flies were asleep upon the wall. The cook in the kitchen was still holding out his hand to seize the boy, and the maid was sitting by the black hen which she was going to pluck. He went on farther, and in the great hall he saw the whole of the court lying asleep, and up by the throne lay the king and queen. Then he went on still farther, and all was so quiet that a breath could be heard, and at last he came to the tower and opened the door into the little room where Briar Rose was sleeping. There she lay, so beautiful that he could not turn his eyes away, and he stooped down and gave her a kiss. But as soon as he kissed her, Briar Rose opened her eyes and awoke, and looked at him quite sweetly. Then they went down together, and the king awoke, and the queen, and the whole court, and looked at each other in great astonishment. And the horses in the courtyard stood up and shook themselves. The hounds jumped up and wagged their tails. The pigeons upon the roof pulled out their heads from under their wings, looked round, and flew into the open country. The flies on the wall crept again, the fire in the kitchen burned up and flickered and cooked the meat. The joint began to turn and frizzle again, and the cook gave the boy such a box on the ear that he screamed, and the maid plucked the fowl ready for the spit. And then the marriage of the king's son with Briar Rose was celebrated with all splendor, and they lived contented to the end of their days. So we start off with a king and queen who wish and wish but cannot have a child. And for me, this raises the question about the archetypal meaning of infertility. What is it to not be able to bring new life into the world? And I, and I think we can know that it's archetypal because it's such a core story in the Bible. Over and over again, women and men in the Bible wish and wish for children and can't have them. I think purely intrapsychically in our own psyches, this infertility can symbolize a time 
when our lives feel barren, when we feel empty of joy and newness, we feel in need of refreshment. We may feel like we're just waiting. And I think everybody has times in their life, which I think, again, are not only like the beginning of our story, but also like that time of being asleep, these barren, empty, gray times in life. I think a time of waiting for me was the time before the birth of my oldest child. My husband and I were both saying at that time that we felt like we had finished with a certain stage of our lives. We graduated college, we'd gotten jobs, we'd paid for adult apartments, we'd learned how to cook, sort of, you know, if you consider like a burrito or ramen <laughs> cooking, we definitely had that down. We could easily have kept living that way, you know, going to concerts, going to movies, making our ramen, paying our bills. But it would have felt like, and it was starting to feel like a simple repetition of the pleasant life that we already knew how to live. And deep inside both of us, we felt the need for something new. And we both started to think about having a baby. And then I quite unexpectedly got pregnant in graduate school. And even though we were terrified, and on paper, completely unprepared for having a baby. For example, I don't know if you know this story, Raisa, but we very, very seriously considered putting Josh's crib in a large closet because we really couldn't afford a two-bedroom apartment. So even though we were really unprepared, it felt right. Yeah, it's funny, but in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm straddling these two worlds on the one hand, you know, there's my wife and my expectations from how I was raised that I would have a child. And on the other hand, there are all the friends I've made in the online worlds of gaming, very few of whom have any intention of having children. It's no longer a broader expectation. And so many of my friends are choosing a different path. The younger ones, I have many ones who in fact already have kids, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it's definitely an undeniably transformative experience. And once my own child is born this summer, I wonder how a lot of my relationships will change on the other side. Yeah, I have to say that it is a transformative experience and your relationships I probably will change. It's hard for people who don't have kids to understand how much a baby reshapes your life and your priorities. We were the first in our circle to have kids, and we definitely lost friends because we were so boring. <laughs> it's interesting, though, in, in the fairy tale, and I think this is very true for fairy tales, there's no ambivalence. The birth of a child in the world of the fairy tales is as much of a necessity to a full life as food or sex or sleep. It just it has to be. And if it isn't, you're utterly incomplete. So in the fairy tale world, the king and queen have a beautiful girl. They invite everyone, including the wise women, to a party. But they don't have enough plates for all the wise women, so one must be left at home. I, this seems ridiculous. Why? Why not give her a different plate? Perhaps in our embodied lives, something must always be left incomplete. If things were complete, if we reach a state of full completion, there's no more room or need for movement. 
when we leave things incomplete, we create space for trouble, but also for transformation. The Jungian epigram that kind of sums this up is no witch, no fairy tale. In other words, the evil witch, the troublemaker, although I think it's arguable as to whether she's actually an evil witch, but the troublemaker is just as necessary as the 12 good witches. Kind of makes me wonder if there's even a difference between the 12, quote-unquote, good and the 13th bad witch at all, or merely by chance that she is left out. Was there a particular decision that she was the least desirable, or simply the last on the list of invitations to be sent? How then might the others have responded? Were they the one passed over? Yeah, I I agree, right? I mean, first of all, they're all wise women. They're not 12 wise women and one evil witch. And I don't think there's a particular difference between them. I think that the 13th, the one who has no invitation, was simply fulfilling the destined role of the change maker. The one who causes trouble, but who also makes it a story. It reminds me of this thing that is actually used as an example of a bad way of storytelling in tabletop RPGs. They call it the quantum ogre, where Mm -hmm. there's two paths, and no matter which way you go, you're going to fight this ogre. And the reason that's bad is because it's a false choice, and you want your players to have agency and feel like they really have something that they're they're doing. But you're going to have something on the route no matter what, it should be different. In this case, I don't think it matters. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it does. I think there has to be, if all 13 witches had given her a blessing, there would have been no story. Right. And like, oh, she grew up happy and nice and, <laughs> yeah, okay, that's, you know. So the 13th wise woman condemns the girl to die on her 15th birthday. But the 12th, who had not yet given her good wish, is able to soften this and turn the curse from death to a hundred years sleep. I wonder why 15 years old is the change year. I mean, one possibility is it's the onset of puberty. At that time, girls hit puberty quite a bit later than they do now. Maybe it was the beginning of life lived primarily away from the protection of parents. The beginning of puberty is a very dangerous time for girls even now, right? It's a time where girls are more likely to be sexually assaulted, more likely to use drugs, get in traffic accidents. All of those are more frequent as teens engage in these initial fumbling attempts at becoming adults. And parents can no longer protect their children in meaningful ways, but the children have no experience or competence in the adult world. It's a very difficult time in life. So it kind of makes sense that the fairy tale might say, yes, 15 is a dangerous time. Watch out. I think we often have 15 as time where children are perceived as entering early adulthood. The Spanish quinceanera, for example, takes place when a girl turns 15 and is a rite of passage for becoming a woman. And then in the U.S., we have a sweet 16, which is, you know, off by a year, but very similar. 
And we even give people their learner's permits at 15 and a half in the United States, which whether you agree that is the right age or not is a huge step towards independence in our country where we're very dependent on cars to get around. Absolutely. Yes. First of all, I think 15 is an insane time to start teaching people how to drive. (laughs) And it really is an initiation ritual. Mm -hmm. It really is. Well, here's a rite of passage. It might kill you. Might kill people around you. But if you pass, if you get through it, you're going to be much more independent Mm -hmm. than you were before. So in many cultures, 15 is a time where children move out from the protection of their parents and into a more adult and more dangerous role. It makes sense that Briar Rose enters into danger at this time. And the king tries a time-honored strategy to prevent this. He tries to be a helicopter parent and to protect his child from all harm. This fails as it always does. It fails as well in quite the Oracle of Delphi form of self-fulfilling prophecy. It's only because Briar Rose has never seen a spindle in her life that she finds the one in the tower so fascinating that she must try her hand at it. It's kind of an example of those ogre things, right? No matter what you do, you're going to face the ogre. Right. It's the impossibility of escaping fate. And it's interesting that what actually happens to Briar Rose is different from the way the curse is worded. Only Briar Rose is supposed to fall asleep. But when she pricks her finger on the spindle, the entire kingdom falls asleep. And I wonder why. One possibility is that sleep is a symbol for dissociation from those splits that we have in our personality. It feels like we can dissociate from one thing, maybe a trauma. We'll put the trauma over there, off to the side, and the rest of us will just keep going. But in reality, it takes an enormous amount of psychic energy to maintain the walls between that which we have made unconscious and our conscious selves. When we repress or dissociate parts of ourselves, when we put parts of ourselves into a sleep, it exhausts our energy for our whole selves, for our whole kingdom. Most frequently, what we dissociate from is feelings. For example, we may remember the facts about a traumatic event, but we have no real feelings about it. In not feeling the emotions of the trauma, we avoid overwhelming or perhaps even annihilating pain. But we pay a price. We have less capacity to feel in all areas of our life. We diminish our capacity for joy, for awe, etc. when we stop our feelings of sorrow or fear. So just like in life, in the fairy tale, the longer the sleep lasts, the higher the wall of thorns grows. The longer we stay numb to feelings, the harder it is to come back to the world of feeling. Looking back at my own experience, I think of when I lost my dad at 15, I sort of shut down everything. I think we talked on a previous episode about how someone had told me that I had to be, quote, the man of the house. But I think that other things like people saying I had big shoes to fill put me on a path of trying even harder to be my dad. And that's another way that I relate to this story and the idea of everything 
going to sleep when the curse sets in. It wasn't just that this terrible thing had happened, but it inhibited my ability to be my own person for years. And it wasn't until college when I completely failed as an engineering major and started to interact with people outside my sphere of safety that I finally started to wake up as my own person. So I had to first get past my grief and trying to be someone I wasn't before I could begin the journey of finding who I wanted to be. So just like the fairy tale, the thing that feels like a terrible problem, Briar Rose pricking her finger on the spindle and falling asleep, or you failing engineering, is actually the event that's necessary for you to have your own story and your own path. I often think it's the person in the family who can easily adapt to the family expectations who actually suffers the most mm. because they don't discover what they need to adapt to on the inside. And as I was writing about Briar Rose, I remembered the glass roses you made when you moved from studying engineering to studying <laughs> art. And I still have some on my mantle. And again, I think it's an interesting connection to the roses in our tale and an interesting symbol of the creative awakening that happens when we come into ourselves. Another symbol you and I might look at is the thorns in Briar Rose. Mm -hmm. And I think they may be symbolic of our most prickly defenses. As you probably remember from our episode on Rapunzel, a Jungian analyst named Donald Kalshed described a powerful set of defenses that protect us from contact with the outside world, that protect our tender, inner, vulnerable, true selves from that harsh, cold outside world. He named these defenses the persecutor-protector complex. Kalshed, in his book, The Inner World of Trauma, describes what happens when we experience severe trauma. He says the archetypal realm sweeps in to protect our innocent and infinitely precious true self. This protection takes the form sometimes of kindly inner images of comfort or console, but this kindly face turns vicious self-persecution when we try to connect with the outside world. It's as if Psyche has learned that the outer world is always horribly dangerous and cruel. The only way to protect our inner divine child or divine spark is to isolate in the unconscious realms. We can do this in sleep, in extended dreamy fantasy, in hours or even days of dissociative kind of trance states. In my case, the sadder, more fearful, or more fragile I feel, the more I lose myself in books, particularly books I loved in childhood and adolescence. I developed this ability, I think, in a trauma of my own, of being in the Yom Kippur War in Israel, where we were running to bomb shelters and a lot of really terrible things were happening around me. And I just went into books. I just think that whole outside world got very vague and dreamy, and my inner life was what was real. And that capacity really helped me through some really lonely, difficult times. Yeah, I definitely 
had that with books when I was younger, but for myself and many people I know these days, video games are sort of the go-to escape, especially with how immersive they've become. It's really easy to spend hundreds of hours playing, you know, even a single game, completely forgetting the worries of our own world for a time. There's this type of game called open world, and it's just all about that exploration and going mm. wherever you want, and they really just suck you in. Mm -hmm. But of course, eventually we do need to snap back to reality. And I think it's tough because sometimes you feel like, man, I'd, I'd almost rather just live in this world where I don't have to worry about any of the everyday stuff. I mean, I think it's almost as if Briar Rose and the Kingdom wanted to stay asleep because it is easier to be asleep than to be dealing with life. But there's also the other polarity from escape and sleep. And it comes in Briar Rose, it comes in the form of these princes who want to fight through the thorns to marry Briar Rose. And I think they may symbolize the powerful life force of sexuality, right? That's something that's going to pull you into lived experience. The sex drive can insistently, even obsessively at times, push us to link to someone outside of ourselves and to literally embody, to come into our bodies with our inner selves. I think the drive doesn't even have to be for the act of sex itself but perhaps just for that human connection. When I was a teenager, I distinctly remember climbing the balcony just for a few hours of company until I had to bike home before anyone woke up. In my house. Okay, fine. <laughs> As Jung says, Eros isn't just sex. It's the drive to connect deeply with people. It's the love drive. It's interesting that you climbed a balcony and the princess had to climb the walls of thorns. It's a little uncannily similar there. Well, I do appreciate that there were no thorns that I had to contend with. It was challenging enough as it was. <laughs> so the princess can also symbolize our desire to connect to our own internal and unconscious other, the parts of ourselves that we don't know. Individuation is the slow connection of consciousness to more and more of our unconscious. The attempts of the princes who failed to scale the walls of thorns and find Briar Rose may be symbolic of the difficulties and pain inherent in truly trying to get to know and connect with our unconscious. After many years of failure, a new generation arises, and a prince is not afraid to try again to conquer the thorns. Again, if we look outside ourselves, this may speak to the need for the energy and hope of youth. If we look internally, it may speak to the value of the Puer or Puella archetype. So could you explain those? I don't think I'm quite familiar with those terms. Yeah, the Puer is the archetype of the eternal youth and the Puella is just the feminine of that. So it's like the, okay. the Peter Pan in us the I won't ever grow up, the, the part sure. of us that keeps our verve for life, the wow, everything is so new and amazing. It's also the part that can be really irresponsible and thoughtless and even harmful to other people. But I think that 
this part of the fairy tale really is about the value of the Puer archetype. So miraculously, when the time was right, after a hundred years of sleep, the prince comes to the castle and finds the thorns are gone. There's no need to fight anymore. They're nothing but beautiful flowers. This rings very true to me. We often, as we struggle to grow a new part of psyche, have to go through a really similar process. We have to try over and over again, throwing ourselves against what feels like a brick wall. And after many attempts, we stop, panting in exhaustion and pain. Somehow in this combination of tremendous effort and pain, followed by a pause, suddenly we may find we have the capacity we needed. I think addiction and recovery is an example of this process, or maybe easier to understand the struggle to free ourselves from an abusive relationship. We often have to try, and then we go back to the same situation over and over again to feel that we've completely failed, that we're doing, as one client of mine said, I'm making the same exact stupid mistake again. (laughs) To feel like we're not strong enough or confident enough. And then suddenly we are. We are strong enough. We are confident enough. There's some, to me, inexplicable combination of effort and pain, failure, and repetition, often over and over and over and over. And then a pause. And that pause opens the door for grace, for something unknown and mysterious, something that feels completely familiar, but we'd been unable to access. For me, the cooperation between human effort and transpersonal grace are all necessary. It might be a bit of an odd comparison, but I think of puzzles in various games I used to play where I would get so frustrated being unable to progress day after day. Maybe I had just gotten it and so I was really into it, but I I got so stuck. And then I would give up. And after months of not having tried at all, I would finally return to the game and expect to get stuck again, but maybe I'm more prepared to spend that time. And of course, then I find the solution right away. Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right. It's like our conscious mind has to bang on something for a while in order to get our unconscious to just come in and go, here it is, no thorns at all, just flowers, go on in. So this is a happy ending fairy tale. Everyone awakes. The prince and Briar Rose marry and live contented to the end of their days. What a happily ever after endings tell us about Psyche. When we have these times of awakening or freeing ourselves from the thorny stranglehold of an old complex, there's a sense of happily ever after. We feel lighter. We feel like we can breathe more freely. We have more energy for growth and new tasks. Colors are brighter. The birds sing in our ears. It can really feel miraculous or simply feel like an internal knot has been untied. Of course, we will not live happily ever after. There will be new challenges, sorrows, and complexes to work on. But the energy that gets freed up by unlocking this particular spell will remain with us to use. It seems that not since our first story, Rapunzel, have we had an ending quite so happy. There's no torture of the witch, no Rumpel pulling himself into 
and no wolves to be slain. There's really no mention of what became of any of the wise women, simply that everyone who fell asleep has awakened, and they all celebrate the wedding of the prince and Briar Rose. It really seems so lovely that this is the story which we conclude talking about Grimm. This is the end of the season, though, and not the end of our podcast or our work together. We have our next project all lined up for us to dive into. We will be returning in the fall with hopefully a new baby in the family (laughs) and a new season of the podcast. And we're going to be talking about Greek mythology. We haven't sorted out all the details, but we're excited to start working on it over the summer. So for the last time this season, thank you all for listening. Our intro-outro music is a sample of Spring Movement 1 Allegro from the Four Seasons, composed by Antonio Vivaldi and performed by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Players. You can find the full version at freemusicarchive.org, link in the show notes. And if you would like what you've been hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast feed of choice, as it really helps other people find the show. This show will always be free and available to all, but if you would like to monetarily support the show, you can do so at coffee, that's ko-fi.com, slash after. Also, Dr. Adina Davidson is a certified Jungian analyst who offers telesessions. You can find out more about her practice at adinadavidson.com or her Psychology Today profile. We'll be with you again next time, but until then, we hope your days are filled with exploring the worlds of imagination and storytelling. Thank you.